Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Previously in our study of the Book of Romans, Pastor Murphy has been showing us some of the unique characteristics surrounding the doctrine of salvation. Today, we'll see how salvation eliminates all human boasting. Romans chapter 3, and I would like to read from verse number 21 of Romans chapter 3, and then we will come to a text later in the chapter, but I think you need to see the context to appreciate where we're coming from. So Romans chapter 3, reading from verse number 21. Of Romans chapter 3. Follow with me please as I read verse 21. We'll go down to verse number 30. And then we'll pick up our text. In verse number 27 and following. But now. The righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God which is by faith. Of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe for there's no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness. That he might be just and justifier of him which believeth on Jesus Christ. Then Paul asks some questions in verse 27. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law or by what principle? By the principle of works? Nay, but by the principle of the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he then the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which hath justified the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Let's pray. Father, would you give us the capacity to sit and to listen, to exercise our minds in respect to your word and to fully grasp the great teaching of the Apostle Paul on this subject of our salvation. There are so many nebulous concepts, so many distortions about what is entailed in our salvation. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us to understand that Paul has given us a fairly exhaustive study on this subject because he wants clarity on this matter. It is so vitally important for us to know that we are saved, to be assured that we are saved, and to know what salvation truly entails before thee. 
There are people who live in anxiety and fear. Some live in doubt and uncertainty. Uh, some are not even too sure as to what this great salvation entails. But we thank you that you've not left us without a witness. And you've given us clarity on this matter. And we thank you for the Apostle Paul's teaching in this chapter. Lord, if there be anyone here this morning who has come into our assembly, we don't know the motive, we can't read the fine print of their hearts, we have no idea what they're resting with, what they're faced with, what they want, what they're concerned about. But this may be the turning point of that person's life. When we take Christ and we exalt Christ and we magnify his propitiatory sacrifice, and we explain in as simple terms as we can what he has done for us. Making it possible for the holy God to be willing to forgive us and to pardon us. To make us righteous so that we have a righteous standing before God. What an amazing truth that we who are saved stand before God as righteous as his son. Not because there's any inherent righteousness in us, but because his righteousness has been imputed to our account. So that God is able to deal with us as sons and daughters, giving us free access into his presence. And assuring us that we are eternally secured in him and need not fear what death may bring or what the future may hold for us. Fortify the faith of your people. And help us, Lord, to rejoice in your word and rejoice in the truth of your word. In these days of so much uncertainty, who do we turn to? What do we look for? On what foundation do we build our lives? What keeps us strong and vibrant and buoyant? What gives us hope for the future? Is it not Christ? Is it not what he's done for us? So help us therefore this morning to pay the more earnest heed to the word. Finally, Lord, help me. No man is sufficient in this pulpit. No man feels adequate in this pulpit. Whenever we take the word of God and we ascend into the pulpit, there is fear and trembling. There is self-doubt. There is the wonder and the awe. Can we do justice to God's word? Can we honor his word? I pray, Lord, that this morning you would help me and give me the wisdom and the strength and the grace that is needed to be able to do a proper exposition of your word. Thank you in advance for your help. And then, Lord, thank you for what you're going to do in using your word to edify your people. We pray these mercies in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, I will be looking at verse number 27. Let me read it again for you. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. When you look at Romans chapter 3, there is probably no greater and more profounder exposition of this doctrine of salvation than what we have in verses 21 to 31. 
In these verses, the Apostle Paul is explaining in meticulous detail the great Reformation doctrine of how a sinful, rebellious, fallen man can be justified before God solely on the basis of his faith in his finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, when we talk about being justified, I just don't mean that a man is forgiven and pardoned. But what the Bible teaches in respect to this matter is that God goes beyond that. He not only pardons me and forgives me, but he declares me righteous. And he treats me as if I am as righteous as Christ is. Now that's an amazing doctrine. How could such an incredible transaction and transformation take place? By what miraculous powers can such an act be done on the behalf of the sinner? Tell me. How can a righteous, holy, impeccable God take fallen, sinful humanity who has violated his law, broken his commandments, but yet this God is able to say to that man who puts his faith and trust in Christ, I declare you not guilty, I declare you righteous. How does he do that? Without tarnishing his holiness and without jeopardizing the law of God. This is what the Apostle Paul is grappling here with. How can God so gratuitously forgive you and forgive me and yet remain just and yet remain righteous? It took the genius of God to solve this problem. And this is what Paul has been expounding here in this chapter. So I want to, this morning, uh, be, uh, further deal with this matter. And I want to explain how, because God has done this so gratuitously, nobody can boast about it. But let me, before I deal with that particular verse, let me ask you, how is it possible to pardon a murderer? How is it possible to pardon a thief? How is it possible to pardon a, an abuser? How it is possible to pardon a person who is a pedophile? Who takes advantage of small innocent children? How is it possible for God to forgive a fornicator? A person who deliberately robs a person of their virginity. How is that possible? How is it possible for God to forgive an adulterer? A person who had made vows before God that he is married to a person but yet goes out of that marriage arrangement and commits adultery. How is it possible for God to forgive a person like that? How is it possible for God to forgive an embezzler? Here's a man working at the bank and you've put your hard-earned cash in there. You've trusted him, but he goes with your money. Yet God is willing to say to you, that man I hail no longer guilty, he's righteous. Can that be just? See? Let's go a little bit further. How is it possible to forgive a prostitute? A woman who uses her body and works it as you work land. 
How is that possible? From one man to the other to gain a livelihood. See? How is that possible? How is it possible for God to forgive a sodomite? A man who goes contrary to nature, pursues a course of perversion, where he no longer recognizes the gender distinction that God has made, and he is completely living a perverted life. But yet he comes to Christ, and at that moment, God says, I forgive you, I pardon you, I declare you not guilty, and I treat you as righteous. Oh, the glory of this salvation. How is it possible to forgive a drug addict? Who pushes things into his veins. Who snorts cocaine. But not only that. Who peddles it. He not only ruins his own life. But he ruins hundreds of the lives of other people. But how is it possible for God to forgive such a person? How is it possible for God to give, forgive an abortion, abortionist? A person who God gives life to in the womb. But because it is not convenient to give birth or because of embarrassment, they go in secrecy and silence and they have the child aborted, kills an individual. They got blood on their hands. It's the worst form of crime. Now I can see a man killing an adult because he is as guilty as anybody else. But to take the life of an innocent child, that a life that God has given, and only God can give life, by the way, but then, that person is totally forgiven. How is it possible to forgive a pimp? That he's a cadre of ladies that he farms out to men at a cost. How is that possible? How does a sinner, guilty sinner, not pay compensation or make recompense for his sin. It is this troubling issue the Apostle Paul is dealing with in this final section of Romans chapter 3. And he is explaining the process by which the God of the universe graciously and gratuitously forgives man and yet remains righteous in the process of doing so. And this is how Paul explains how it was done. The first thing Paul tells us in, 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 in this section is that God acts on the basis of sovereign grace. I repeat, sovereign grace. Being freely forgiven by his free grace. Chapter, verse number four, 24. Free grace. What that really means is that he didn't have to do it. What that really means is that there is no, there was no compulsion in God to forgive you. What that really means is that there's nothing in you that deserved God's grace and God's forgiveness and God's pardon. What it means is that there's nothing compelling God outside of himself to stoop down and freely justify you. Is there anyone that can stand here this morning and say, Pastor, I deserve it. I deserve it. It all has to be of grace. See? Nothing you can do, nothing I can do 
It has to be of grace. So Paul tells us that, secondly, not only it must be of grace, but in the exercising of this grace, it could not compromise his justice. That is why sin had to be paid for. And what Paul goes on to say is that God punished sin in the person of his son. That when his son died on the cross, his son died as the propitiatory sacrifice. He died as the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the earth. He was our mercy seat. So God is not compromising his justice even though he's exercising grace. He exercised grace, but he must be just. And in order to be just, sin had to be paid for. And guess who paid it? Somebody paid it for you. He said, Pastor, I don't like that. Well, that's your problem. You pay for it then. You pay for it then. The Apostle Paul wants us to clearly understand that in forgiving us, God did not compromise his justice. He displayed his righteousness on the cross when Christ was crucified. I'm saying all of that because we have an idea. We go around talking about love, 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 love. And all we talk about is God's love for us. But we have missed the picture. Listen, if you teach salvation only on the basis of love, you don't have any salvation. What you've got to understand that when it comes to the cross, there are two things involved. The justice of God is involved. He has to act justly. He can just wave his hand and say, I forgive you out of love. Because to do so would violate his justice. So don't just talk about God loving people. You've got to understand salvation in the context of the just of God and the love of God. These two things run together. They're parallel. You can't have one without the other in this matter of salvation. In other words, God could not have loved you so much that he forgave you and violated his justice. Couldn't do it. He could not compromise who he is, his character. He had to show you love, but to show you love, justice had to be met. And the whole teaching of Paul in this section is that what God did when he crucified, had his son crucified, is that he was actually meeting the demands of his justice, what he required of men. So Paul is emphasizing, first of all, that God acted in grace. Secondly, that this grace of God uh, enable God to send his son to die in man's place. And the reason why that was done is because it's not just about loving you. It's about the fact that God had to show himself righteous even in, 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 in providing salvation. That's why twice in the passage we studied last, uh, on this passage, the talk about the righteousness of God is revealed. Twice. And what does it mean that the righteousness of God is displayed? He's displaying his righteousness. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that it's righteousness that... Now, the two things in the Bible, the right that Christ will impart to you. It's imputed to you. But that's not what Paul is talking about in, this, in, uh, in these passages. He's talking about God revealing his righteousness on the cross. What Paul is doing is vindicating God and exonerating God for being charged. 
that in exercise of his love, he violates his own character and violates his own law. And that can't happen. That's why Paul spends so much time on this matter. So when Christ died and became our propitiatory sacrifice, he completely fulfilled all the requirements of the law. He completely died in a way that he canceled all sin, past, present, and future. All sin. Could I tell you something? When a person put their faith and trust in Christ, when you are judged at the judgment seat of Christ, it is for your works. The sin problem has been solved once and forever. When God sees me, even though I am a sinner by nature, he sees me in Christ. I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I am in him. That's what enables God to deal with me as a son and treats me as a joint heir with Jesus Christ. But I have no inherent righteousness, but I have the imputed righteousness of Christ put to my account. So now that I am in the black with God as it were, I am, I'm no longer in liquid, I'm now, I'm now in liquid form. See, I now have assets, not my own assets, but his assets. God deals with me on that basis. Now I, I know that uh, I can get carried away with this. Because I've been trying to understand this uh, newfangled doctrine of outer darkness. And I still can't comprehend it yet. How can a justified, Robert, justified believer, I didn't say you're going to be justified. You're already justified when you put your faith and trust in Christ. You've already been declared righteous when you put your faith and trust in Christ. You've already been pardoned, completely pardoned. How can you now take a justified believer and cast him into outer darkness for a thousand years? You tell me. Did not our Lord said, what shall separate us from him? Should life or death? Or things present or things to come. Nothing. Whether in heaven or on earth or on, nothing can separate the believer from Christ. And it's interesting that this uh, particular doctrine has now come at the same time and dealing with Romans. Honestly, I think it is a, a fascinating coincidence that it has come. And so I want to bolster your faith and your confidence that there's no outer darkness for you. Okay. You ain't going to the outer darkness. I asked somebody on that same question, um, where is this outer darkness? They can't tell me yet. Is it before when I die? Now, by the way, it makes far more sense if when I die, I go into outer darkness. Far more sense. Than to tell me that after I'm raptured, after I'm raptured, when I see him, I should be what? Like him. So now I'm like him, he cast me in outer darkness. Because they're saying it occurs after the, uh, just before the millennium. So while you're going on and the millennium is going on, you and I are outside in a suburb wishing we can get in, but we can't get in. And we are grieving. We are grieving. So you take a justified believer who now looks like Christ, who is changed, and you put him in outer darkness for a thousand years. It's better to put me in outer darkness before I get changed. Does that make sense to you? Makes a lot of sense to me. So the Apostle Paul, uh, if you study this epistle very carefully, uh, I think that once one gets a grasp of what the true doctrine of justification is all about, 
one understands that you are not just now, you are forever in Christ. He will never leave you nor forsake you. But not only that, you have the, the Holy Spirit who will dwell in you for how long? Forever. So you're putting the man who's in Christ, the man who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit, with a renewed body, you're now putting him in outer darkness for a thousand years. Now, if that makes any sense to anybody's theology here, you need to go to the madhouse. Go straight to the madhouse. No sense whatsoever. So in the reckoning of God, the full debt of sin has been paid through the sacrificial death of our Lord. The just demands of the law have been met. And uh, the righteousness that you need, Christ has provided it. Because I want to say to you, what man needs above everything else is righteousness. That's exactly what he doesn't have. Remember Romans chapter 1 verse 8. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? All unrighteousness. So what you need is righteousness. But how are you going to get it? This is Paul's argument. No righteousness that man has could ever appease God. Even your righteousness is filthy rags. Nothing you can do. Let's suppose. Let's suppose that from today on you live a righteous life. But let me ask a question. How old are you now? Well, I'm just, I don't want to tell you my age, but I've just gone past the 60s. So, okay, let's suppose I start from now saying, well, Lord, I'm going to live righteous to you. What about the 60 years before? How are you going to deal with that now? Tell me how you're going to deal with that before. What the Apostle Paul has been teaching, and we've looked at in verse number 27, where he says, verse 26, um, verse 25 and 26, sorry. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the what? The remission of sins. And I pointed out to you that what Paul is doing in this section, he's not just content to give us an exposition of salvation. The Apostle Paul is now in the final section talking about the character of this salvation. And the first thing Paul talks about is that this is the kind of salvation that exonerates God and justifies God. And Paul does show you in those verses how God dealt with sin in the past. Now, we dealt with that in the last uh, sermon. And uh, those of you who are here would know why I emphasize that. Look again at those verses, <clears throat> verse 25. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the what? The remission of sins. I told you the word there is not remission. By the way, Brother Barber came to me after the service. I'd never heard that before. I said, go and get your concordance to see that the word is not remission. It is pre-termission. And what Paul is talking about in that section is how God has dealt with sin before the cross. Now, everybody in here can know clearly that after the cross, Christ died. We can understand God forgiving sin because Christ died for sin. But what Paul does in this section, let us understand that in the past, in the Old Testament, God had a temporary system put in place to deal with man's sin temporary i mentioned it's like putting it in a suspense account god forgave all the old testament people that put their faith and trust in his promises and he put their sins in a suspense account that's why paul says uh in, in this passage uh in the remission of sins that have passed through the forbearance of god he put up with man's sin his wrath demanded 
that sin be paid for. But in his forbearance, he put up with... Paul talks about this in the book of Acts. He said that there was a time when God winked, as it were. Winked. But what Paul does in that, those two verses is to show you that the reason why God could do that is because God had anticipated the death of Christ. And that when Christ died, his sin is not only proactive to that which is in the front, but it's also retroactive. Took care of all sin. Now again, why is that important? You say, but Paul, why you have to be so meticulous? Why you just, just tell us that God saved us? Well, you got to explain how God dealt with sins in the past. Because again, God has to be just whatever he does. So Paul is trying to exonerate God how he dealt with sin in the past by his forbearance. It's as though God saw you doing wrong in the past and just winked and said, oh, just ignore that. But even a holy God, he can't ignore it. So how do you explain then that in the past when a man sinned, he, he was not punished by God? Because God put a temporary order in place under the Old Testament economy that sin was covered, not removed, covered. But God did that because he knew that his son would die from the foundation of the earth. And that when he died, his work would not only be proactive, but also be retroactive. Took care of all sin. So God has proven that he's just. That's the point what Paul is saying. We always talk about Love, God is showing his love. That's all we see. But salvation, first of all, has to do with God, not you. You have to vindicate God, honor God, glorify God. It's all about God. Your sin is against God. But we get so wrapped up with this idea that God loves us. That's what we emphasize. But we have to show the man that is not saved. Listen, it is true that it's about love, but understand what justice demands. Somebody has to be punished. And either you remain in your arrogance and decide you're going to be punished for your sin, or you can let your substitute, our Lord, take your place and have your sins forgiven. You know, I don't think anybody here Anybody here could ever plumb the depths of that agonizing cry coming from the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There's not an artist that can paint that picture. There's not a writer that can, can, can write it in words, my dear friend. There is not a philosopher that can plumb the depths of those words. There is not a theologian who fully comprehends what it is that when God's wrath was poured out on his son, he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? See? That is one of the great mysteries. See? But it's an explanation of the justice of God. Anybody here willing to give their son for anybody else? But not only that, anybody here willing to see your son stripped naked? The cross is not, you see a loincloth on people? That's just a, a, a picture of trying to mitigate what it really was. See? Anybody ever been brutalized like he was brutalized? Beaten like he was beaten? You ever had your beard struck yet? Some of you can't even pull one beard, one little hair. <laughs> but imagine what it is to be yanked from you. See? Anybody ever had a nail punch? 
going right through your heel, right down through anybody ever, have anybody ever hanged from a cross yet? And you say, but why would God do that? Why would God allow his son to die? Why would he do it? Because his infinite justice demands that sin be paid for. He loves you, but someone has to pay. See? That's the glory of the cross. It's not just about love. You know, when I come to John's gospel, and I understand now where, and I can almost say with him when he said, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. But it does not yet appear what we should be, what we should be liking when we see him as he is. What glorious words are those? Do you fully appreciate what Christ has done for you. See. Look, if everybody in this room were to die for the sins of the whole world, it still could not satisfy the justice of God. If the entire population of Antigua were to die for the sins of the world, it could not satisfy the justice of God. But because he was the eternal son of God, it means that his sacrifice has infinite worth. And that is why all have the potential to be saved and to be forgiven. By the way, because of what Christ has done, and because he has fulfilled the justice of God and made righteousness available to us, it enables God to do so many things for us. It enables God to justify us. It enables God to baptize us into the body of Christ. It enables God to give us all access into his presence. Now think for just a moment what that means. Think for just a moment. You have access into God's presence. Think about it. Go back to the Old Testament. Only one man had access to the presence of God. Once a year. The Day of Atonement. No man ever went into God's presence. The Holy of Holies. But the great high priest. And once a year. And they had to tie a string on his foot. And heard the bells of his moving. The moment the bells weren't moving. And no one said he was dead. So they yanked him out of his foot. Now think of it that God, because of what Christ has done for you, have given you ready access. Where we cry now what? Abba, Abba, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. That what was blocked to me and to you, I now have access. And it's all because of the great salvation that we have. Not only justified us, baptized into the body of Christ, granted us access, but made us a joint ear with Christ. And that's why I have a problem with the outer darkness people as well. They tell me I'm not going to reign with Christ. But I'm a joint ear. So you're going to disinherit me, brother? How are you going to disinherit me? If God is allowing me to join ear, which man can disinherit me? So don't tell me I'm not going to be part of the kingdom. I'm not going to be out in outer darkness for a thousand years. Don't tell me that. I'm a joint ear with Christ. You're robbing me of my joy, man. You're robbing me of my anticipation, man. And of course, it enables him to give us a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And then, in case we leave anything else, Paul says, we're blessed with all spiritual blessing. Where? In heavenly places. You measure that for me. You tell me what's the limit of that. To be blessed with all blessings in, in heavenly places. Expound that for me, sir. 
Now that's the high ground on which all believers in Christ who knows the Lord as Savior stand. That's the high ground. Now that brings me to the second point uh, of Paul's character. The, first of all, Paul is saying this salvation is of the character that it vindicates God and it exonerates God. It shows that God is righteous. It displays God's righteousness. We studied that in the uh, verses 25 and verse 26, the last time that we were here. Uh, and that brings me to the next characteristic of this uh, sacrifice of Christ, this, 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 uh, this thing that Paul talks about. And that's where we are this morning in verse uh, number 27. This is the next characteristic. It not only is a salvation that exonerates God and vindicates God that he's righteous. But the second thing that Paul said is the salvation, verse number 27, that excludes any and absolutely any capacity for us to boast. Look what he says. Where is boasting then? If what I just told you is true, where is there room for pride and arrogance and self-conceit? Where can a man now boast? The Apostle Paul is suggesting to us the character of this salvation not only exonerates God, but the character of this salvation makes it totally impossible for any kind of human boasting. Now what does Paul mean when he talks about boasting? Where is boasting? Now the word translated boasting is one of Paul's favorite words. If you go through Paul's writing, you find that this word is consistently found sprinkled throughout Paul's writings. It is one of the great words of the Apostle Paul. And he was familiar with this word because Paul had one great problem before his conversion. He was a man who was a Pharisee and a Jew, and he had a tendency to boast. You remember when he was given a thorn? Why was he given a thorn? Now, he'd been planting church after church and doing all this great work. Now the Lord gives him a thorn. Why is he given a thorn? Well, you would have thought that God using him in such a way, he would have been humble. But listen, lest I be what? Exalted above measure. Lest my head swell and get too big. I begin to feel I can boast because of how God is using me to found church after church. I sprinkle the landscape with churches. What a great man I am. And God said, brother, I see the tendency in you there. I know that, you know, our past is often carried over into our Christian life. You know that? Oh, yeah. I can give you a little secret that I want you to never forget. The sin you got saved from, when you got saved, is the same sin that will bring you down if you're not careful. Yes. Now, I know we all got sins. But it's always a besetting sin that stops you from coming to Christ. I don't know what it is. Don't tell me this morning. Don't embarrass yourself. I certainly will not embarrass myself. But it was, I had many, many, but there was this one that kept me from Christ. You know what I discover? I've been saved a long, long time now. I was 16, 17, I'm now 60 something. But let me just tell you something. You see that same sin? 
I have to wash that same thing because in my old age, it no want to come my way again. Yeah, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. You will never, it will be there. And that's the problem with Saul. He was a proud, arrogant, boastful man. I'll tell you how I know that. Go to Philippians chapter 3. Listen to him. Circumcised if they of the stock of Israel, Hebrew of the Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, touching the law. He's already memorized his list. Already. He, he, he said it with such kosher, so easily. He can propound and tell you everything. This is what? No, that's the man that is saved. But he can still remember the things that meant so much to him before he was saved. His boasting, as it were. His nationality, his birth, his training, his knowledge, his morality, and his religious, religiosity, basically. That's what Paul has in this particular passage. But he said here uh, clearly that there should be no boasting. Now, I believe also that the reason why Paul mentions this at this juncture is because Paul is targeting especially the Jew. You remember that he's going to say that, okay, is he God of the Jew only or God of the Gentile? He's God of all of them. But remember, the, the problem with the Jew is that the Jew is a very proud person. He thought he had a corner in God. He thought he was so special that the Gentiles were dogs. And he distanced himself from the Gentiles. Listen, he would not even eat with the Gentiles. You remember Peter? Even after he got saved and understand that uh, the Gentiles have been justified just like the Jew. But you remember he went up in Galatia and there he is among and then somebody came from the church in Jerusalem. Uh, maybe James, the big top brass guy. And here is here's Peter uh, socializing with the, Jew, with, the, with the Gentiles and everything is okay until this Jewish big hat comes up. And the moment this big man come up, this dawn come up, what happened? Peter now withdraw himself from the Gentiles and would not eat with the Gentiles. Because it's not kosher for a Jew to mingle with a Gentile and socialize with a Gentile. And Paul came up there and said, listen man, you're a big hypocrite. Paul said, I withstood the man to the face because he was wrong. Because Christianity erases all social distinctions. All economic distinctions. All racial distinctions. All geographical distinctions. It puts all of us in Christ. We are all one big family. And if you don't like that, get out of the family. Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us areas where men are proud and how we should remove these from our gospel presentation. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m. or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.